Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find several speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Jill. Hi, I'm Jill, a compulsive overeater and 100-pounder. Hi. So I have my big book, a bunch of literature, and some tissue, and some water here, so I think I've, that about covers it. Ay, 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 Jesus, Pete. <clears throat> All right, so I'm saying in my head, okay, God, here we go. Um, when I walked into the rooms tonight... Um, Right before I uh, took my seat, I, um, a fellow asked me how I was doing, and I said I was anxious. And then I stepped out of the room for a minute and um, talked a little bit to God, invited him into my chair tonight. And I was reminded that um, I, don't have any, I don't have anxiety. I have a separation from God. So... And, um, you know, I've been here for a bit, and I'll get on into all of that in a little bit. Um, but uh, that being said, I've been in these rooms for a little bit, and uh, most of you have heard my story. So I really want my uh, experience, strength, and hope, and what it was like, how I got here, and what it's like now to be, um, I really want to talk to the newcomers. And my hope for the newcomers um, is first of all congratulations um, and even if you didn't raise your hand and you're sitting by the door and you're like for the love of God what am I doing here and you know tick tock when can I go have dinner you know I, I get it and regardless I'm happy that you're here and um, and for those of you who took a chip I was, I was just recalling what it was like for me when I took my first chip as a newcomer and raised my hand and that being said I um, uh, it's almost eight years. I'll have eight years of uh, recovery on December 26th with God's grace. And um, just kind of recalling what it was like for me in taking my, my first chip. I was at the Sunday relapse meeting, and I'll get more get get uh, into more of that in a little bit. But I remember raising my hand and sharing that I was a newcomer, not a compulsive overeater. That took me a long time for those words to actually come out of my mouth. So if you're not able to say that you're a compulsive overeater, my thought is that's okay. Um, and I remember raising my hand, sharing that my name was Jill, and getting up and taking a chip and saying that I had been struck willing. And for those, again, uh, newcomers, if you're new, um, really new, my hope is that you're out of ideas and desperate. Um, all right, so let's see. Um, where do I want to start? I want to start with the big book, What a Concept, um, because for me, and I want to say too, since I'm speaking to the newcomers uh, tonight, um, I'm going to read some from AA literature, and when I say the word alcoholic, for me it was helpful to replace it with compulsive overeater, and when I read the word alcohol, it was helpful for me to replace that word food with food, and I could relate to it a lot better that way. So I'm going to start with one of my very favorite readings because it reminds me of who I am every time that I read it. And it's chapter 3, more about alcoholism, page 30 of the big book. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. 
Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is a great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. We learn that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. And for my benefit, I'm going to read that again. The delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. All of us felt at times we were gaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. We are like men who have lost their legs. They never grow new ones. Neither does there appear to be any kind of treatment which will make alcoholics of our kind like other men. We have tried every imaginable remedy. In some instances, there have been brief recovery, always followed by still worse relapse. Physicians who are familiar with alcoholism agree there is no such thing as making a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. Science may one day accomplish this, but hasn't done so yet. Despite all we can say, many who are real alcoholics are not going to believe they are in that class. By every form of self-deception and experimentation, they will try to prove themselves exceptions to the rule, therefore non-alcoholic. If anyone who is showing inability to control his drinking can do the right about face and drink like a gentleman, our hats are off to him. Heaven knows we have tried hard enough and long enough to drink like other people. So like I said, that's probably one of my very favorite readings in the, in the big book. Um, now just to tell you a little bit about who I am. Um, I came into these rooms, for the love of God, this, okay, I'm just going to, let's just take, I'm going to take my collar off right now, it's making me crazy, yeah, all right, so I came into these rooms at 327 pounds, I'm maintaining 160 pound weight loss, and um, again, by, the, by God's grace, I'll have eight years, December 26th. So what it was like, um, I want to talk, talk a little bit about working with a sponsor first, um, I, um, it was recommended, strongly recommended, that I get a sponsor early on, which I did, and strongly recommended that I work the steps, which I have. I've been through all 12 steps, and I'm in the process of bringing, uh, reading every single page of the book, big book, and I write on um, each single page. Um, so uh, I have an abstinence and a food plan, and if you care to know about more about that and specifically what that looks like for me, I'd be happy to talk to you about that after the meeting. And um, my sponsor also early on said that uh, her call time was 6 a.m. and that I would be initially reading from the OA 12 and 12 and the AA 12 and 12, reading a paragraph at a time and then writing on that. I was to give her my food every day, and the deal was if my food changed, changed, I would let her know. And she also told me that I couldn't be in a relationship for the first year of my recovery and my head about popped off my shoulders <laughs> and I and I didn't understand it at the time and I can say that was certainly today it's one of the greatest gifts she gave me and I've ever given to myself and she explained what what that was is and the reason behind that was because my recovery had become the most had to be the most important thing to me today and for the at least the first year there were no distractions 
and that I didn't know myself because I had been all about food for, I don't know what, the first 50 years. And I had no idea who I was or what I had to offer to a relationship and how can you build a relationship on without a foundation. And so she strongly suggested that my first year be all about my recovery, um, the commitment to my recovery and my and myself. So that being said, um, um, it's one of the things that when I sponsor people today, I also require that as well, and I go to at least three meetings a week. So uh, what it was like, um, she uh, also suggested that I uh, write a food history, which I also have my ask my sponsees to do, and what that did for me is it connected the feelings with the food and really kind of gave me some insight into into how long, really, I had been using food. So in writing that food history, it came about that my earliest recollections at compulsive overeating, I was four years old. And I broke, this was shortly after Halloween, and I broke into the neighbor's next door house, broke into an open window. I started my food crimes pretty early on. <laughs> and I uh, stole all of their Halloween candy, and I buried it in the backyard in a shoebox. <laughs> and, you know, that may sound like a pretty interesting, funny story, but was but what is telling to me, or more interesting to me, is what was going on with me at four years old. I had no clue how to express my thoughts or my feelings. And at four years old, I started using food. And at four years old, I started stealing and at food. And at four years old, I needed something to take the edge off. So um, I kind of graduated from breaking and entering and stealing others' foods to um, the helmsman. And for those of you who are too young to know what to know what a helmsman was, it's a it was like an ice cream man, but they sold bakery goods. And um, I started a tab with a helmsman. <laughs> I started a tab with a helmsman. Like, who does that? So my mother had no idea, and because I'm a people pleaser, that meant everybody in the neighborhood. So, yeah, started a tab with a helmsman, and, um, and um, that's what I did. So at 12 years old... I, um, there were two things that happened to me, and this may be an outside issue, but it's pertinent to my story. Um, there was a, a school, an elementary school across the street from where I lived, and after school, I would ride my bicycle over to the school, and at times I would help the janitor in the classroom. Um, and, I, and I haven't really talked about this, really, um, in these rooms. But again, my hope is that it, it helps somebody, particularly a newcomer, kind of connect the dots with them. In any case, I would help the janitor clean the chalkboards and the empty the pencil sharpener and such. And um, After a period of time, I was molested by that janitor. And what's interesting to know is that he didn't offer me a shiny toy. He didn't offer me a puppy. It was candy. And... I took on all of that self-loathing, all of that shame, all of that not good enough, not worthy enough, and I internalized it because I didn't know what to do with all of that, and I certainly didn't tell anybody. And shortly after, my parents were separated and divorced, and I internalized, I internalized that as well. And so really what eating did for me was validate everything I thought about myself. And certainly in eating up to 327 pounds, that was the payoff for me. 
It validated what I really thought about myself. Worthless, unworthy, unlovable, hopeless. Um, So I did a lot of drugs and alcohol, and I slept with whoever I wanted to sleep with and slept with who I didn't want to sleep with and really used everything externally that that I could use to distract myself. And... I was reading a bit bit of literature before I came here tonight, and uh, there's a bit in the um, seventh step in the AA 12 and 12 that says it perfectly, so I'll just go ahead and read that. It says, For thousands of years we have been demanding more than our share of security, prestige, and romance. When we seemed to be succeeding, we drank to to dream still greater dreams. When we were frustrated, even in part, we we drank for oblivion. Never was there enough of what we thought we wanted. And so during those years, and you know, certainly with the food, there was never enough of what I thought I wanted. So um, let's see, I was pregnant and married when I was 20. And that's when my compulsive overeating really took off. I gained 60 pounds when I was pregnant. I had toxemia, which is a, a type of blood poisoning. And I had high, uh, high blood pressure due to my weight gain. That being said, I had a cesarean section, and I share that because it's, in my belief, it's as a, it's as a result of my compulsive overreading. Um, I, uh, you know, I was just thinking, it's really, it's really something that I'm up here talking today. It's the truth, and the truth is that I'm so humbled and so grateful for that. And I also want to step back a minute and tell you what I know. And I've shared this before at meetings, but, you know, it's the first page of the big book, which is this page. This is what I know. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And when I work with new sponsees, the very first day I say, all right, go to the first page of the big book and write on that. And they're a little confused, and I keep telling them to go back a page, back a page, back a page, and then they go to the page that says, it's blank, and I said exactly that's what you know, so I want you to write on how much you don't know. Because you know what? For me, at 327 pounds, my best ideas got me here. And what keeps me humble today is not knowing a damn thing. I don't know anything. I just keep showing up. That's the truth of the matter. And I refuse to shortchange myself today. And I was talking to a fellow about that a couple days ago. If it were up to me, I'd shortchange myself at every turn. So back to my story and what it was like at 327 pounds. The big book refers to it as a self-imposed crisis. Um, And that's certainly what it was for me. Two types of high blood pressure medication. I had severe acid reflux. Wake up in the middle of the night, um, choking on my my acid. Would go into the airway, choking and gasping for breath and ordered pizza the next day for breakfast. Um, The only thing I knew how to intuitively do was to push the redial button for the pizza guy. And I've heard in meetings that um, before, which I relate to, the only two tools I had was a knife and a fork. And that's what I did. <laughs> and I, and I, there were times where I, you know, all I did, every thought I had was about food and how I was going to get food and how I was going to manipulate you from the dinner table so I could take your food and how I was going to manipulate myself into once again cleaning up the kitchen so I could eat the leftovers. And I never ate out of the trash because there was never any food to throw in the trash, and that's the truth. So um, 
I uh, had a broken ankle at one point. I had a full-length leg cast. I was in a wheelchair, and the wheelchair was too small for my butt, and I tried to get up out of the wheelchair, and the wheelchair was literally wedged on my butt. You know, I could go on and on and on about incomprehensible demoralization. Um, there were times um, I had to fly a, light, fly a lot for business. Um, the many, many times in an airplane where I was too shameful to ask the flight attendant for a seatbelt, so I went, uh, I flew in an aircraft, un, you know, unsafe. Um, wouldn't go to amusement parks for fear I wouldn't fit into the ride. You know, again, I could go on and on and on about what it was like. Again, it was all about food. So there was a time that I started getting really curious about my sexuality, and I think most of you, again, have heard this story, as bizarre as it is. And um, I started getting really curious about my sexuality, and there was this girl at work, obviously gay, and I said one day to her, I said, you know, can I ask you a question? And she said, yeah, you can ask anything. And I said, what kind of food do you guys eat? (laughs) That's all I wanted to know. Seriously, and she looked at me and she said, well, we probably go to the same restaurants that you and your husband do and probably go to the same grocery stores. And I said, okay, I'm in. And I didn't give a thought to what my husband might think of that, and I didn't give a thought to what my child, how that might affect my child. That's how self-centered and self-obsessed I was. Um, So... I don't know what else to say. I mean, it was just all about the food for me. I know what I want to say. I want to read some read some more literature here. So, this is from the OA 12 and 12, step one, that says, Clearly, if we are, we are to live free of the bondage of compulsive eating, we must abstain from all foods. And eating behaviors with causes problems. If we don't overeat, we won't trigger the reaction that makes us crave more. But this, too, has proven impossible for us to do by our willpower alone. Before we found OA, every diet or period of control was followed by a period of uncontrolled eating. This is because our malady was not just physical in nature. It was emotional and spiritual as well. We were obsessed with food, and no amount of self-control or weight loss would cure us. Because of this obsession, the days always came when the XX food looked so inviting to us we couldn't resist, and our firm resolutions were forgotten. Sooner or later, we always started overeating again, and gradually or rapidly, the eating worsened until at last we were out of control. So I think that pretty much sums up what it was like for me. Um, Let's see. Again, in step two, OA 12 and 12, page 11. Most of us, however, never reached suicidal suicidal desperation. Instead, we took comfort in a feeling that everything was all right as long as we got enough to eat. The only trouble was that our compulsive overeating progressed. It became harder for us to get enough. Instead of bringing comfort, the the overeating backfired. The more we ate, the more we suffered. Yet we continued to overeat. Our true insanity could be seen in the fact that we kept right on trying to find comfort in excess food long after it began to cause us misery. Once we honestly looked at our lives, it became easy for us to admit where we had acted insanely where food and weight were concerned. Most of us, however, were able to confine our compulsive eating to the hours when we were alone and to carry on with relatively normal lives. And this is on step two. 
again from the OA 12 and 12. Perhaps we didn't believe that our compulsive overeating was a spiritual problem or we felt that God was only concerned with more important matters and expected us to control such a simple thing as our eating. We failed to understand that God loves us in our totality and is willing and able to help us in everything we do. That God will help us with every decision, even food choices and amounts. So, you know, like I said, I, I worked with a sponsor on all of these steps, but I have to say probably steps 1, 2, 3, 4, and 9, and 11 are probably the most life-changing for me. Um, and for me, you know, for me, step one was about the gig is over, the game is up. You know, I had to fully surrender, just throw in the towel. I, I don't know a damn thing. Sorry, I don't know if that's swearing. Um, but I, I don't know anything. <laughs> just like the first page of the big book, I don't know anything. And when I, when I start my day with that kind of humility, what that does is it opens my eyes and my heart to show up for the, for the teaching of the day, for learning of the day. If I walk around thinking that I know everything, my, my heart is closed as, as well as my eyes. So that really affords my, my heart to be open for the day. So how I got here is I was in a relationship um, for a long time, and that person ended the relationship, and I was devastated. Now, I had been in another fellowship and sat there talking about how if everybody would change, my life would be perfect. And if everybody would just show up and do what I wanted them to do, my life would be, would be perfect. That's how arrogant and self-centered I was. In fact, I even said, shared, raised my hand and shared many times that if I could find somebody that was just like me to be in a relationship with, my life would be perfect. <laughs> and I was so arrogant that I didn't get a sponsor in that program. And so arrogant, I'm sure I read my fifth step to myself as well. <laughs> and that's how I operated. Everything was about me and how it affected me and what it was, what it was in it for me and when I was going to get mine and how much and never enough. So I was talking to a friend on the phone complaining about that person and the break of the relationship, and she said that she had a friend of a friend that used to go to a meeting or that went to a meeting, and I, she might have said Overeaters Anonymous. I don't remember. All I heard was there's a safe place for me to go and be out of myself for an hour, and that's something that, was, that I wanted to do, to just get out of myself for a minute. So I showed up at the Sunday relapse meeting in, in Sherman Oaks, and I walked in, and I heard the speaker talk about food and had the same thoughts and ideas that I did about food. And I remember, for me, it felt like home. I remember thinking that I wasn't some freak that just couldn't, that just couldn't control my food, and what a relief it was that there were others like me, and what a relief there was that there was some sort of solution. And what a relief there was, it was that there was some sort of hope. I also want to say that I know that there's no chance for me outside these rooms. There's no chance. For me, the hope is inside these rooms today. So newcomers, please don't leave. And I invite you to step into the miracle of recovery tonight, too, by the way. Um, so, like I said, I got a sponsor right away, and I started working the steps. And what my life is like today 
as corny and as hokey as it sounds, it's completely different, and I'm living most of the promises today. Um, you know what I want to share, too? I want to rewind just a little bit and talk about the whiskey and the milk story. You know, and when I got to that reading in the big book, what stood out for me is that part of the reading of the chapter is in italics. So I thought, well, that must be really important. And then it started with the word suddenly. And I know for me, when I can start a sentence with the word suddenly, it's a problem. Because my, I have thoughts that come in the form of really good ideas. And that's what the whiskey and the milk story is all about. Thoughts that come in the form of really good ideas. So I'm just going to read a little bit of this. All right, so it's about this guy that has a few words with his boss in the morning and has kind of having a hard day, and he, he goes into a restaurant, and he says, Suddenly the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey into my milk, it wouldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered, whiskey, or I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sensed I was not being too smart, but felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. The experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it into milk. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. And on and on and on it goes. And what, what I'm reminded of when I, read, when I read that, and again, when I can start a sentence with anything that starts with the word suddenly, it's, it's a bad idea. So that being said, I was probably about, maybe about two or three years into um, my recovery. Again, thoughts that come in the form of really good ideas. I was traveling, I think I was in Phoenix or Tucson, not that it matters, and, but <laughs> I was at the hotel and uh, had stayed there quite a, quite a few times and that affords me the privilege of staying on the concierge level with the, um, by the concierge lounge. So I uh, wanted some water and suddenly I thought, well, the water in my room isn't the same as the water in the concierge lounge. I need to get a bottled water from the concierge lounge. So I went over there and got a bottled water and there was a beautiful spread of snacks on the counter and nobody else was in there, just me. <laughs> and I'm looking at the snacks thoughts that come in the form of really good ideas and I said to myself my partner would really love these snacks poor <laughs> thing is out of a job I don't want her to be forlorn and hungry roaming the streets roaming the alleys hungry when I can get free food and by the way, I want to say that my partner's never asked me to get free food for her. By the way, if you see some free food and you're traveling, will you put some in your bag and bring them home? She's never ever said that to me. Ever. So I looked at the snacks and I thought, poor thing, she could really use these snacks. She would probably really be delighted to have these snacks. So I took a couple bags of snacks and I went into my room and I put them on the bed. Well, that's not enough. She needs more than that. That only lasts her like a minute. So I went next door, got two handfuls of snacks, put them back in the room, then there's a little pile on the bed. Well, that's not enough either. So now I, 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 I have my key card, and I'm in the concierge lounge again, 
getting the snacks, and now I and now I know before I leave my room that I'm going to have to take that security latch because I can't have an armful of snacks, the key card, and get in the room at the same time. And I don't want to be caught and embarrassed, so you know I better just put the security latch so it keeps the door open. <laughs> so I go into the concierge lounge, and now I have a whole armful of snacks and now I'm like back and forth like a squirrel back and forth back and forth back and forth back and forth and now I think okay now what am I going to do with these snacks I know I think there's probably a dry cleaning bag in the closet so I went to the closet whipped that bad boy open and I thought well I can't go in the concierge lounge with this bag that's really going to be embarrassing so back and forth, back and forth, and I put them in the bag, and by the time I put them in the big bag, they looked like there was hardly anything in there. So then I need more snacks. So then I put them into my suitcase. <laughs> Thoughts that come in the form of really good ideas. Put them in my suitcase, and then I am on the way to the airport the next day, on the way to the shuttle, I'm thinking, for the love of God, what if my suitcase doesn't pass the weight test because of the snacks? <laughs> I'm not going to pay for that. I'm going to put it on my expense card and just tell my boss that it was some training materials or paperwork stuff that I had because I'm not going to pay for that. So I get to the airport, my bag passes the weight test, I get home, I open my, my suitcase, open my bag, and there are the snacks. She doesn't need all of these snacks. I know, I'll put them in with my earthquake food. <laughs> so I can have snacks, I can be the only one that has food or snacks during an earthquake. <laughs> This is the kind of this is the kind of you know this is the kind of stuff that I think about. These are thoughts that are really good ideas. It seems like brilliant ideas at the time. So then I go to the meeting and I'm sitting there front and center of the podium. It was a Friday night meeting. I used to live in Long Beach, and every person up there, blah 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 blah. Thank you. Judging. Why don't they work the steps? When are going to read a big, big? When are they going to read the big book? What's wrong with him? Quit complaining. Where's the solution? <laughs> when is this meeting going to be over? I hate this meeting. Why don't they stick on topic? The meeting's late. What's wrong with the secretary? On and on and on. Intuitive voice comes through and says, "Jill, how much time did you spend on thinking about those snacks today?" And so I got up the podium and I shared my, story, my snack story, just as I'm sharing with you. And after the meeting, a fellow came up to me and said, Jill, do you think you owe the hotel an amends for stealing their snacks? <laughs> I won't tell you what I wanted to say. <laughs> what intuitive voice said was, you may be right, I'm willing to consider that. And I went home and I told my sponsor, and of course she said, throw those snacks away immediately, and by the way, even an earthquake, you're abstinent. That being said, you know, I, and I want to really, really say that my abstinence, my recovery is everything to me. It's everything, and I treat it with the respect that it deserves. I'm clear that I'm abstinent. I don't have slips. I don't take a bite of. It's the same to me as an alcoholic drinking or not. An alcoholic wouldn't just pick up a bite of something or a drink of something in hopes that there's no alcohol in there. When I show up today, 
um, to have dinner with somebody, I either ask what either ask what they're having. It's my, my abstinence is my responsibility. It's my responsibility to bring food if they don't have the food that, that I can eat there. That's that simple. And what it's like for me today, I still get up at 6 o'clock or 5.30, and I have a number of sponsees that I work with. I have a sponsor that I still call at 6.30. I've had the same sponsor for the last seven and a half years who is, who is a 100-pounder as well, and that's what I do. You know, I, I get to meetings early, sit in the front row, and I raise my hand. You know, and, and we're talking about a spiritual awakening. You know, I was when I got to step 11, I was like, tick-tock, tick-tock, where's my spiritual awakening? When is that going to happen? Tick-tock, tick-tock. <laughs> you know, intuitive voice says, Jill, the minute you walked into the room, so it was a spiritual awakening. The minute I let go of an old idea is a spiritual awakening. The minute I raise my hand or put away a chair or talk to a newcomer is a spiritual awakening. Anytime I'm out of myself, it's a spiritual awakening. That's how self-obsessed I am. So I think I want to, I think I want to end with the, the reading for today and the for today, for today. Um, December 13th which says amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I once was lost but now I'm found I was blind but now I see by John Newton nothing could better describe what so many of us in OA feel the words of amazing grace for us however the experience is not a religious but a spiritual one Whatever the religious beliefs or non-beliefs, spiritual recovery is felt as a profound interchange, a dissolving of the attitudes and opinions that kept us chained to compulsion. Spiritual awakening heals us of our self-willed blindness to the truth about ourselves and our condition. We are no longer wandering alone and lost. We are found. For today, that people so deep in the clutches of compulsive illness can recover is truly evidence of amazing grace. Thank you for asking me to share. Sure. Um, sure. She asked me what my abstinence is and how my food has evolved. Um, I have an abstinence that is basically um, no sugar, um, no snack foods. And no form foods. And form foods for me are anything that looks like something else. My head tells me that a protein bar is full of protein, and I need extra protein, so have 18 of them. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> so I have a number of form foods that I stay away from, and my food, my, and then I have a food plan that's separate. Um, there are things on my food plan that I don't eat as well because it sets up the, it sets up the compulsion for me to overeat. Um, um, and how has that changed? Um, there are things that are surprising to me that I need to fit into my food plan that comes up. For example, I got back from a, a trip to, to Ireland and I was obsessed with stew. There's nothing in stew that should really set me off. I look at the ingredients, but there was something. I, I was like, I was in the store and I was like, went to the stew section. And I was like, where's the stew? Where's the effing stew? The stew was here yesterday. Up and down, up, seriously, up and down the aisles. Where's the stew? Where's the stew? 
Find a guy that works there. Where is the suit? We're out of it. Well, can you call another store? And here, and this is what I do. All right. So that item is on my is on my food list. Anything that calls me goes on my food list. If for me, if it's not an option, it's not a problem. And that and zero is easier for me than one. So no bites is easier than one. Thank you. The question was, did I have any prior knowledge or belief in a higher power prior calling coming to program? My sense was is that there was something bigger than myself, but I had a real true experience of what I used early on in program to to e equivalent that with that kind of sense. I was hiking. I had a pair of crappy tennis shoes on, and I fell and broke my ankle. And this big blue truck came over the hill. That was a really isolated area, and it was what happened to be the only worker that was getting ready to prepare the resort to open for summer. And I remember thinking, what are the odds of that coming at that exact moment? And I remember for a long time I thought of that big blue truck and that gentleman coming and scooping me up and putting me in his truck and keeping and taking me to a, a, a safe, a safe comforting place i.e. the hospital and for the long for a long time i used that that analogy if you will of a higher power and it's developed since then um, the question is what is my daily spiritual practice um, like i said i work with a spon my sponsor of course and then a number of sponsees in, in the morning reading the pages of the big book right now um, i do exercise that involves a spiritual practice and what that looks like is that particular exercise, I practice being present. And before I start that exercise, I, I invite God into that exercise practice, um, and I ask God to be a part of my breath. And I physically listen for the inhale and the exhale of my breath, and that being God. And at the end of my exercise practice, I thank God for the ability to move my body with grace and ease today, and without shame or judgment. And that's my pra part of my practice. Practice, my spiritual practice can also be a walk. Um, I do what I call God walks and where I, I, I talk to God when I'm walking. The question was, um, can I elaborate on what's the most interesting part of my story? I have shared prior that my weight loss is the most uninteresting part of my journey. What's most interesting to me today is the relationships that I have with people. Primarily, um, my son, who I made nine-step amends to, my son had never known me, had never knew me at a normal body weight. And when I first saw him, um, after releasing this weight, he thought I was sick. And we had to have a whole kind of talk about that, and I made amends to him. So to answer your question specifically, um, it's the relationship that I have with my son today as a result of, of the nine-step. It's, it's showing up as a mother today it's showing up as a grandmother of five today it's um, being a loving relationship with a partner for almost six years it's being a sister today um, and that's the most important most important part of my journey today so thank you for letting me share